So last week was our last lesson for our series on the Bible. What my plan is for the rest of the semester is we're going to pick up in Genesis where we left off in the spring. So I'll have to remind y'all where that is. And in the, in the spring, what I'm going to do is we're going to have uh, some lessons on what is the atonement, which is, for example, when you say Jesus died for the sins of the world, what does that actually mean? You know, does that mean everybody goes to heaven? If not, why? If he died for everybody's sins, why doesn't everybody go to heaven? You know, just what happened, what actually happened on the cross to make that. It's called the doctrine of the atonement. So we'll look at that, and then we'll also look at some basic evangelism helps. On, so just ways that you can then have tools to know what you can do to get a conversation started with somebody. And uh, those two lessons, those two series are going to make a little bit more sense based on uh, some of the sermons I'm also going to tie into with those two topics next year. Uh, kind of have a themed t- year for some of my sermons as well. Uh, and when the fall, we'll have a couple of topics related to that as well. So we're going to be in Genesis, though, to close out the rest of the week. And in Genesis 14, that's where we're going to pick up because that's where we left off. Uh, Quite a long time ago, uh, starting in Genesis 14, the reason why I liked starting in Genesis is because, one, it kind of sets the foundation for the whole rest of the Bible. You understand Genesis, you really understand where a lot of the rest of the Bible comes from. And then I like doing it on Wednesday night because there's a lot of interesting stories in Genesis that you just don't see in a lot of Sunday school textbooks. Uh, A lot of stories get skipped. And... Some of them, it's because they are uh, got more adult content in them. Some of them, just because it's hard to understand what their purpose is in the Bible. And so you ask the question, well, they're in there for a reason. What is that reason? So Genesis is a difficult book, but it can be fun to go through because of that. Uh, so we're going to be in Genesis 14. <laughs> One of Ashley's favorite shows right now is the, the cartoon Blaze. Have y'all seen it? It's on Nickelodeon. Do y'all have ever seen that? It's a new couple of y'all that have young grandkids know what I'm talking about, Blaze. Uh, Blaze is a cartoon about monster trucks. And, that, and Josie, for some reason, loves vehicles. She loves little toy vehicles and that kind of stuff. So it just makes sense that she loves this cartoon monster truck. And it follows the main character named Blaze. But Blaze has a, uh, another character named Crusher. And they're what you would call frenemies. So they're, they're friends, but they also are kind of like rivals. They're not really, they kind of compete against each other. Crusher especially is, the, is almost like the bad guy of the show. So he tries to do things to um, sabotage what Blaze is doing. But at the same time, they have a relationship that's almost like a friendship. It's kind of odd. But in one of the episodes we were watching... Blaze is helping the town build uh, buildings. And Crusher goes, well, I can build buildings better than that. And so he drives off, because that's what he's always trying to do. He's always trying to look like he's better than Blaze at everything. So he drives off into the wilderness, and he begins to build a tower. The problem is, as he builds this tower underneath him, one, he's doing a terrible job at it because it's about to fall over. And secondly, he builds no way down. So he gets to the top of this huge tower that he's built, and it's about to fall over, and he has no way to escape. And the only person that can save him is Blaze. 
And so at that point, you know, Blaze has a choice. He can go save this person who kind of sabotages him every now and then, but is also kind of like his friend. Or he can just ignore him because it really isn't any of his business. And of course, Blaze goes and, and the show is about him and the, and the quest he goes through to save Crusher. That's kind of the scenario that Abraham is facing in chapter 14, but on a much more serious scale. If you're in chapter 13, just before this, if you looked at your Bibles, Abraham and Lot had just had a fight with each other, essentially, their, or their people had been fighting over land. And Abraham came to Lot and gave him a choice. He said, pick whichever land you want, and if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. And Lot looks at two lands, and he sees that the one across the Jordan looks more lush and looks more beautiful and looks like it's better land. It's the area of the land that's not promised to Abraham by God. And so he takes the better-looking land and gives Abraham the really poor-looking land, even though the, that land is actually the land that Abraham's promised by God. And we're told at the very end of that story that even though by appearances it looks like Lot got the better deal, it says Sodom and Gomorrah were in that land. And so it gives us a little bit of hint that stuff that looks on the outset to be like a good idea could be actually a bad idea because of the evil that's involved with the people in that situation. And it's right after that story then about this argument, this debate, this fight that Abraham and Lot had, and this split up they had, that you then go into 14 with this pretty interesting story that has a lot of long names in it. <laughs> and so <laughs> what we're going to do, oh, I got brought the wrong Bible today. I didn't have the marker in this one. Um, so what I'm going to do to kind of speed up the time a little bit, because I'm going to do the whole chapter, is I'm going to summarize the first 12 verses for y'all. Plus, I don't want to torture anybody by asking you to read all those names, because <laughs> I don't want to read all those names either. <laughs> so um, I'll just summarize what happened in the first 12, and then we can, I'll, I'll explain the rest of the story and ask y'all some questions. So essentially what happened is there was these city-states that each had their individual kings, and they had been serving over a sovereign, a ruling king, for about 12 years. They'd been giving them taxes and all that kind of stuff. That was a pretty common thing, to have a suzerain king with little city-states underneath you. And those city-states decided they didn't want to be under this big king uh, named Chetelormor. Chedorliamur, Mur. It's hard for me to say. It's uh, Aramaic, not Hebrew. Um, and so they revolt. And they quit paying their taxes. They quit giving him reverence and that kind of stuff. And so the next year, the sovereign king comes and he dictates his allies. And there's a battle between the rebellious kings and the faithful kings. And two of the rebellious kings are actually the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, they have this battle in this valley, and uh, let's see if I can find the, the verse here. Verse 10, the valley of Siddam, where it says it's full of tar pits. Mm -hmm. And the rebellious kings lose, and as they flee, a bunch of their men fall in these tar pits. 
Now, it says in verse 3 that this valley of Siddim's in the salt sea. Basically, what we think happened, what we think it is, because there is no valley of Siddim anymore. We think back then, part of the Red Sea was not water. The Red Sea was actually a lot smaller. And there's actually evidence, geological evidence, to support this theory that the Red Sea was a lot smaller back then. And this one area, which is now underwater, probably did have a lot of tar pits, and that was used to be called the Valley of Siddim. Um, like I said, there's geological evidence to support that. Also, there's historical evidence because the Romans used to report that that area of the Salt, of the salt Sea what used to have floating tar masses. They actually called it, um, it had asphaltia, asphaltia, asphaltolite, that area, and it would have these huge mass, massive tar floating on top of the water there. And so even though we, you can't really visit the Valley of Siddam, there's evidence to show that we know that used to exist there, and that's where this used to take place on top of these tar pits. And then you get to verse 12, though, and you get the real crux of what the first 12 verses are about. And that is, it says, they also took Lot and Abraham's nephew and all his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Now, when you leave off in chapter 13, the word it uses for where Lot's living is the idea of a temporary residence. But here, the word using is one of a permanent structure. So at some point between 13 and 14, Lot went from living temporarily on the outskirts of Sodom to actually having a permanent residence inside of the city. And that quality comes up again in another story that y'all probably are familiar with, his love for this very wicked city. And so the story then changes in verse 13 and switches over to Abraham, and somebody comes and it calls Abraham the Hebrew there, probably to represent that at this point he was seen as at least a very powerful figure in this area. He wasn't a king, but people knew him and they knew he had a lot of followers, as this story will show. And so he was a powerful figure and he's teamed up and has made an, a covenant with a few of the other Canaanites in the area, namely Mamre, Eskol, and Aner, or Aner. And so somebody comes and they tells Abraham, hey, Abram, hey, your relative Lot got captured by these people, and Abram has a choice. He can go save his nephew, or he can stay where he is. Now, the choice is a lot more important than you realize because you think, well, it's his, you know, it's his relative, it's his nephew, and all that kind of stuff. But there's more going on by this because Abram knows that he is the person that the covenant is promised to. He's the person that God's redemption is going to come from his bloodline. The redemption of the world is going to come. So if Abraham dies, the redemption of the world dies with him. So this isn't just a story about Abraham saving his nephew Lot. It's about will the person who carries the redemption of the world in his bloodline fail and God allow that to fail? Well, um, he gets his forces, his trained men, verse 14. 
This is the only place in the Bible that word is used in the Hebrew. And it's actually proof, the partially proof that this story really happened because the only other time we've seen this word is from Egyptian manuscripts from the time period that Abraham would have lived. They've only found a few other manuscripts with that word on it, and it was from Egyptian manuscripts talking about Palestinian clansmen from the time period that Abraham lived. And so he gets that word again? Trained. trained men in the English is what it's translated in the NASB. I don't know what it's translated in other Bibles. NASB, it's trained men in verse 14. So he gets his 314 trained men, 318, sorry. And they begin, they chase after these guys that are carrying Lot. And a lot of people, you know, first verse 15. In fact, let's go ahead and read. Get somebody, somebody read verses 14 through 16 for me. And then, then when we get to the next half of the story, I'll have somebody read the next half. But I want to make sure we get some scripture reading. Who wants to read 14 through 16? All right. And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan, and divided himself against them, and he and his servants by night and smote them, and pursued them unto Hobah, and which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he... 16, yeah, 16 too, yeah, also. And he brought back all the goods and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods and the women also and the people. Okay, so this story is one of the stories that some liberal scholars point to as a reason why the historical accounts of the Bible can't be trusted. And the reason why they point to this story is they say, how could there be a battle between all these different kingdoms and it was at least a big enough army that the kingdom of five kings beat the kingdom of, or thinking of four kings beat the kingdom of five kings. And then a dude with 318 go out and win a battle. But people who doubt that don't take into account some of the things that's happening here. One, Abram had 318, but he also, as we see later in verse 24, had Mamre, Eskol, and Amor with him and their men. So the army they had probably had more than 318. Abram was just contributing 318 of them. Secondly, as this passage talks about, they had very good warfare strategies. They divided their forces they attacked at night with a surprise attack. And it's just, it's quality forces there. And so that makes sense. And then finally, um, you have to take into account too, God's ability to use smaller forces to overcome bigger forces. And this is not the only place in the Bible where that happens. You have the story of Gideon, for example, where it's 300 against a whole army. Even David and Goliath can be compared to that. Um, and so this is not the only story where you have an example of a smaller force defeating a bigger force. What's more interesting to me is here you have Lot who has all these great resources, technically has the better land in terms of what the physical quality of it looks like. 
And yet a guy with the worst land and the fewer resources was able to do what Lot's family couldn't do in the battle. And why do y'all think that is? It's not a trick question. Because <laughs> God was with him. <laughs> God was with Abram, not with Lot in the battle. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Uh, Abram's doing what he's supposed to, and Lot's really not. Um, so they go out, they have this battle, and um, defeat the kings, or at least defeat the portion that was taking Lot captive. Even if they didn't defeat the whole army, maybe they just defeated the portion that Lot... But whatever happened, they were able to get Lot and with him, the uh, Sodom and Gomorrah's kings and their possessions as well, back and achieved a victory for them. And that's what verse 16 is. Now, depending on how you look at this story depends on where you think the most climactic part of this story is. If you look at this story from a human perspective, it almost feels like the, the, the most important climactic part is verses 15 and 16. It's the battle, you know? It is, is he going to live? Is he going to survive? Is Lot going to be freed? But if you think of it as, as more of a spiritual perspective, it almost paints the picture of verses 17 through 24 being the most important part of the whole story. And so can I get somebody to read 17 through 24 for me? Yes. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba, that is the king valley, after his return from the defeat of that guy, and the kings <laughs> who were with him. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. Now the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. Except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me Anar, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. Very good. So in this last section, you have what's called a chiasm. It was a common Hebrew to Bryce. And basically in a chiasm, what they would do is they would, um, almost like a, like a mountain, they would repeat stuff on one end until the mid, so that the middle part was emphasized. And so in this, you can see what, what I'm talking about because it talks first about king of Sodom in verse 17. And then 18 through 20 is Melchizedek. And then 21 comes back to Sodom. That, that it's called a chiasm. Basically, to, they did that, go Sodom, Melchizedek, Sodom, purposely to emphasize what's happening with Melchizedek. That's what they did called a chiasm. 
And so in the story, sometime after, because this valley of uh, Sheva is probably near Jerusalem, uh, the King's Valley, based on its, its nickname, the King's Valley, sometime afterwards, the king of Sodom and this guy named Melchizedek shows up to Abram, and they're both going to offer Abram something. Now, we learn automatically and know a few things about these two guys just simply by the first few verses. One, we understand King of Sodom. If we know anything about the rest of the Genesis, which the author probably would have anticipated some of that after it was written, we recognize that this guy is probably not a good guy. I mean, if, his, if he's in charge of the city that God has to completely wipe out, He's probably not that good either, you know. He's the one that let it get that way. If not, he's the one that led it to be that way. And so he's not a very uh, righteous person. And then the, his companion could not be any, any further from what he's like. The, uh, his name is Melchizedek, which literally means king of righteousness, so he's the king of righteousness. It says he's from Salem, which was the old name for Jerusalem. In fact, you still see the word Salem in Jerusalem. So he's from Jerusalem. He's king of righteousness. He's a, not just a king, but he's a priest. And he's a priest king of the God Most High, which we know refers to the true God because of what he says to Abraham, Abram. So the two guys could not be any different. So in verse 18, it skips, to, it skips to Melchizedek, and he first gives him bread and wine, which Abram accepts from. And then he, he gives a blessing, but his blessing isn't focused on Abram. His blessing is actually focused on God and how great God is, and specifically that God possesses heaven and earth and that God delivers their enemies into Abram's hands. That's the two things that he basically, it's like a reminder to Abram about who God is, that God owns everything and that he gives blessings to people. And Abram, in a way, recognizes that Melchizedek is possibly even a spiritual superior to him. And that's what blows our minds when we look at this story. Even when you go into like the book of Hebrews, which we'll talk about that Melchizedek might actually be even a better God follower than Abram is. And we know that not only because he's a priest and a king, but Abram felt he needed to give 10% to this guy. I mean, that's how, that's how big of a deal this guy is, that Abram tithed to this king. Wasn't he the only priest and king other than Christ? Uh, yes, and probably David, too, King David. Yeah, because David offered some sacrifices and did some stuff in the temple, too. Yeah, and that's pretty important to remember, that he's the only priest king other than David in the Bible and Christ. Because um, we'll talk about how Christ connects to this passage in a second. So, verse 20 um, you have this blessing that focuses on who God is as possessor of the world and gives blessings. Abram recognized that he, unbelievably, the father of our belief, father of our faith, gives 10% to this dude. 
And then it's King of Sodom's turn. <laughs> and uh, the King of Sodom doesn't offer bread and wine and words. He offers him more than that. He actually makes a pretty business-like good deal. He says, you can keep everything. He says, just keep everything you've got. I mean, picture yourself in that scenario. That's, and from a human standpoint, that's a much better agreement from a king. You keep everything that you, all the spoils you've got. But Abram recognizes, and I liked how McLaren said it. He said, with the ring of what Melchizedek said still in his ears, he rejects everything the king of Salem gives him. In fact, we know that he was still thinking of Melchizedek in verse 22 because he says the exact same thing Melchizedek just says. Do y'all see that in verse 22? He says, I have just sworn to the Lord God most high. You know, that's in verse, 20, that's in verse 19 and 20. Mm-hmm. Possessor of heaven and earth. That's in verse 19. And he says, I've just sworn to this guy, Melchizedek reminded me of, to the Lord, that I'm not going to take anything from you. And his reason is legit. And that is that he doesn't want the glory of his stuff to come from people thinking that Sodom gave it to him. He wants people to know that God gave it to him. He doesn't want anybody to look at him and say he has a companionship or he has connections or he got rich or he got promoted because he has a reputation and a relationship with the king of Sodom. He wants people to only know that whatever he has is because the possessor of the whole universe gave it to him. And that's what he cares about. Um, and that's what he says. He said, I for fear that you would say, I've made Abram rich. And, but he does say in verse 24, these guys that aren't, you know, these Canaanites that are also pagans, they can take from you, but I'm not. And so that's the story of um, Abraham saving Lot. I've got some questions I want to ask you guys, but what, do y'all have any questions first about this story? Uh, yeah. Uh, in this uh, verse 21 there, uh, the king of Sodom uh, was talking to Abraham about spreading this stuff out. So you keep all the goods, but give me the people. Mm-hmm. The Sodomites. Yeah, yeah, the Sodomites, his people. And was, uh, uh, his purpose maybe in that, wanting the people and him take the goods, uh, and the people have nothing. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure the people didn't like that, but it was common back then, you know, when you had a victory, you got to keep everything. And so Abram had a right by that culture standards to keep everything. Um, And so even though it is weird that he says, you know, give me the people, they'll have nothing, even though there'll be people. From the culture standards, that still would have been pretty generous because he had a right even to keep the people as servants for himself. So that still would have been generous back then, seen as generous. Yeah, a lot would have stayed in Sodom. And he did go back to Sodom. Yeah. Lots a little hard-headed. Yeah. <laughs> but Abraham knew how wicked the king of Sodom was. Oh, yeah. For sure. Mm-hmm. It, there, it, even though the Bible doesn't say it, there's definitely hints that Sodom and Gomorrah's reputation was pretty well known. 
back then. So first, when you talk about this story and as we talk about Christ, you know, the question comes, and one of the questions I always have to ask is, where, when you read the Old Testament, ask, how does Christ connect to this passage? That, whenever you read the Old Testament, that's a question you should ask. How does Christ connect to this passage? And Hebrews 6 connects it for us. We don't have to guess. So can I get two people to go to Hebrews 6 and somebody else go to Hebrews 7? Uh, Somebody get Hebrews 6, 20 through 7, 3, which 6, 20 is the last verse in the chapter, so don't get worried that's a long time. Hebrews 6, 20 through 7, 3. You might want to read that, and then I'll give the next person a, a slightly different verse. Hebrews 6, 20 the last verse in chapter 6, and then 7 through, then, yeah, go ahead and read those four verses. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Now, whether the forerunner uh, is for us entered, even Jesus made the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah. For this Melchizedek, uh, uh, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abram gave a tenth part of all, first being thy interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of the Salem, which is the king of peace, whether father without mother, without descendant, descent, having neither beginning of days or end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth the priest continually. Yeah. And then somebody else get verses 15 through 17. We're going to skip to 15 in that chapter. All right, Josh. All right. So, the um, author of Hebrews is interested in showing people that Jesus is a lot better than what the Jewish people had going for him. That he's the fulfillment of the Jewish Old Testament law. And he goes back to this story, the author of Hebrews does, to point out that God basically promises us in this story another priest to come who's going to be greater than the Old Testament law, just like Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and all of his descendants too. And he makes several connections between Christ and Melchizedek, like Melchizedek was a king and a priest, Christ is a king of priests, he was right, king of righteousness, Christ is king of righteousness, king of peace, just like Christ is king of peace. Um, all these things to show that this basically, on the surface looks like just an event, but deep down, it's a promise from God 
that God's got another key, king priest coming who's going to be greater than the Old Testament law and whom that is going to fulfill the law for us and save us. Don't some think that he was Christ? Yeah, and so based on that passage in Hebrews, there's a lot of different understandings on who this Melchizedek is based on what Hebrews says. Uh, some people think that it is Christ come, um, what, what's, uh, a Christophany is what it's called, a pre-New Testament appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Some people think that he is an angel or something like that, uh, not a real person. Um, the other option, and that, the one I take, is that he is a real guy, but the author of Hebrews is using analogies and uh, typology to compare this real guy to what he says another king is coming, similar to what he does with David. You know, Jesus is, David is not also Jesus, but David points to and leads us towards somebody like him that's coming that's better. And that's how I see it. I think Melchizedek's a real person who also points us to somebody like him that would come later, which is Christ. But yeah, there's some people that think it, that it, he's not a real person, that he's either Jesus or an angel here. The, the listeners in Hebrews in the New Testament times would have had a history of hearing the story of Melchizedek. Yeah. His, his greatness mm -hmm. over Abraham mm -hmm. or Abram. Mm -hmm. I mean, kind of like Superman to everybody today, you know, old mm -hmm. Superman. Oh, yeah. In, in real life, the Hebrew people oh, yeah. over and over and over have repeated that story mm -hmm. to where it's handed, you know. Yeah. Where did you know, it's a, I was fascinated mm -hmm. when I first stumbled across yeah. the order of Melchizedek in yeah. Hebrew. Yeah. And he was something else. Yeah. Hmm. What are you gonna say? Where do you get his knowledge? Uh, there was probably an oral knowledge because Abraham didn't have the Bible either, so there was probably an oral knowledge of Yahweh and who He was, and Abram was probably not the only person that followed Him. In fact, we know that's true because Melchizedek shows up and is following Yahweh also. Um, you know, because we know the Bible didn't start getting written until Moses, which is. A lot later than Abraham is. You said the Egyptian writings were uh, that confirmed the train men. Mm -hmm. Was that when they were they were writing on papyrus then still, weren't they? Or were they? I think these are. I think these are tablets of stone. They, uh, you know, on like a wall, a tablets okay. of stone. So they weren't yeah. on yeah. They, I mean, they might have been writing. I'm not an Egyptian scholar, so they could have been writing about Papias back then. I, I'm not really sure. Uh, um, so what do y'all think this passage teaches us about God? What's the lesson we should learn about who God is from this passage? Like I said, there's, all, there's always three questions you should ask every passage. What does it say about Christ? What does it say about God? What does it say about us? We just talked about what does it say about Christ. So what does this passage say and teach us about God and who he is? He's awesome. 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 He's awes
The most high God. Yeah. He is awesome. Creator of heaven and earth. He's, it tells you right there. Yeah, he's the possessor of heaven. Yeah, he is. He was working all of human history at the time towards him becoming Christ. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he raised up to have written down for us so that we could see the fuzzy picture of Christ to come. Mm-hmm. You get the it's almost like a little puzzle pieces yeah. that you get of who this guy's you know, like there's somebody coming later and this is kinda of what he's gonna be like and you get those little puzzle pieces. He's the real reason for the victory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is. So what does this passage teach us about us, what we, sh- what we should believe or do or feel? Please don't say you're going to go out and go fight a battle in tar pits. <laughs> 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 Cause people to fall in the tar pits. Go ahead, Josh. <laughs> you know, kind of like Melchizedek did, he pointed everything back to God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we should be humble. Yeah. We should be humble. Realize where our success comes from. Mm-hmm. Was this before Isaac? Yes. Yes, it was before Isaac. Uh, Yeah, he did. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. He's praising God for, he's saying God possesses everything and gives blessings, and that's even before God gave him Isaac. That's right. When you said that there was a picture of Christ, that some views it as a picture of Christ, is where they get it is because he came out and brought the bread and wine, like, you know, I mean, oh yeah, I mean, I'm, I haven't seen anybody say that, but I certainly see where where you can get, make that connection. That's where maybe they get that connection is because he brought the bread and wine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was trying to figure out how yeah. would... where he's a king and a priest. He's king and a priest. That's. And he and the and the author of Hebrews, you know, he takes the fact that nobody there's no lineage to Melchizedek, so that nobody says who his father and mother is. And he kind of expands that to say, you know, Jesus is also eternal. He doesn't have a father and mother. So, which is one reason why they say this is Christ, because the author of Hebrews says he doesn't have a mom and dad. Um, but, like, I think he's just saying it's just not mentioned in the Bible. We don't know who they are. Something we don't need to know. What about the end here with, so- with the king of Sodom? Is there a lesson for us there about how Abram treats the king of Sodom? For us? Yeah. And treat even your enemies with respect. Mm-hmm. Take nothing you don't deserve from the wicked. Yeah. Don't corrupt yourself. Don't corrupt yourself by associating with wicked. At least not a close association. I mean, you can't help but do business with people that aren't Christians if you're business. You know, Don's a banker. I'm sure he's done banking with tens of people that aren't Christians and stuff. But don't don't be, don't be greedy and have close 
these close connections and relationships with people that can mess up your reputation. That's what Abraham is worried about. He's worried about his relate his his reputation with Sodom messing up his own rep, reputation in front of other people. That would be like uh, uh, Abraham was uh, hoping maybe that uh, Sodom would uh, be a good disciple. <laughs> I'm sure, and he certainly had hope for Sodom. You know, in the later stories, you see he he tried to help Sodom and Gomorrah out as best as he could, and they just wouldn't take it. All right. Well, I'm going to pray. Uh, we'll we'll close out for today for that story. Dear God, thank you for the story you've given us, for the reminder of who you are, that you are the possessor of heaven and earth, Lord, that you hold all things in your hands, and we thank you for that, and we thank you for knowing that uh, you go and you. You're with us, and that is, as we stand with you under the covenant, just like Abraham stood with, his, under, with you under his covenant, that you are there with us too, Lord. And we thank you for these pictures of grace that you've given us, even in the Old Testament, that you are a priest for us, that intercedes for us, and also our king who's righteous and has peace. And Lord, I pray that you would just help us to be people you called us to be, to trust you as the possessor of heaven and earth, to rely on, uh, to rely on you to give you the glory when we have success. And Lord, to have wisdom in how we deal with people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right.